Acts 11, catch up those that maybe are new. Uh, we're teaching through the book of Acts here Wednesday night at seven o'clock. You can join us. Uh, there's been a movement in Acts and it's moving toward what we're gonna get to today. So it starts with a divide in Jerusalem between two groups. It kind of, it threatens the church. The guy named Stephen is called out from among the, the outsider group. He leads, kind of rises up, starts to share the gospel. He's killed for it. Persecution starts, starts to kind of spread and kind of discombobulate the church a bit. They're like, oh no, what do we do? And then a guy named Saul stands up who spearheads this and it really starts to scatter the church. Uh, then you have, we saw last week, Peter has a vision of here's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to shake you guys up and send you out because I want the good news to not just be reserved for the Jewish people, but for all people. And so Peter gets that, shares, Cornelius gets saved, has to come home to the big church and explain what he did, defends himself like, wait a second, they were saved by God's grace, just like you and I, right? And then we come to our text, chapter 11, verse 19, which is, Luke's been driving to this point. It's gonna now take center stage, this part. Now, those who are scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, so now it's just recapping from chapter six through chapter 10 traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So they're still saying, in order to get saved, you first have to become a Jew, read the Torah, memorize scripture, be circumcised. And then when you've done all that, you can get saved. But there were some of them, interesting men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenist or the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. And they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so let me try to set the stage here. Antioch, major city in the empire of Rome. It was the number three biggest city, 500,000 plus people. Okay, after the Roman empire fell, you may not know this in history, we didn't get big cities again until the 1850s, like London. Up to that point, there was no 500,000 person city. 
So it took almost 2,000 years to get back to what this city was. Big. It was on a trade route. So a trade route between um, Europe, Africa, and Asia would go through this town. It was a brilliant location. And so then you have people coming from all different kind of places and saying, you know, I'm going to stay here. That's why it says Cyprus and Cyrene. Like there's all these different people living in this city. Well, sometimes people from different places and different groups, they don't always get along. Have you noticed that? Like the ducks and beavers. Sometimes there are going to be problems between different groups of people. So here's what the city did. They kind of divided up the city into little micro cities and built walls around them. So these people stayed there and those people stayed there and they just kind of did their own cities inside the big giant city. So that's what it was. So it was very cosmopolitan, pluralistic, divided. It was also very immoral. So outside of the city, there was a temple to Daphne. If you don't know who Daphne is in mythology, she's a beautiful young lady. And the God Apollo fell in love with her and tried to woo her, and she wanted nothing to do with him. So finally, he comes down, and he's going to get her. So he's chasing her through the woods, and her father turned her into a tree, a laurel tree. Now, I don't know if you have that kind of power. Why you didn't just save her, period? Like, hey, just come over here, but changed her into a tree. So around the temple at Daphne, there was this big grove of laurel trees. And to say it nicely, inside those trees, all kinds of shady activity took place. That's happening. It was immoral. Tons of temple prostitutes, male, female, it's all that. So you've got this pluralistic, diverse, immoral city, and all of a sudden, the gospel comes in. And three times it says, a great number of people believed. A great multitude were added. Great numbers were added. It's like this to me. It's like in the 1970s here in America, we had the sexual revolution, you know, uh, free love. And then we had the, like this, this kind of dabbling in, in different kind of religions, Bhagwan Rajneesh, whatever. And then all of a sudden the gospel comes in and we have the Jesus movement where tens of thousands of people are getting saved because the, the sexual thing or the religious thing, it's like eating celery. You know, if you eat only celery, you die. Did you know that? Just eat it, then you'll understand. Like, yuck, it is dying. Now it takes more energy to digest it than you get from it. So all those things were like eating celery, just like, oh, I thought that was gonna fill me up and it doesn't, oh, oh, Jesus. So this place, it's just blowing up. Antioch is the church there. So news of this gets back to the church at Jerusalem. They're like, Antioch had a reputation. It's very immoral. So like, oh no, there's no named person here. Notice that? Like this church is, no one knows who founds it. It just... Who started the church? Nobody knows. Like, I love that. Just an unnamed group of passionate Jesus followers and it's just boom, explodes. So now you've got this exploding thing. The church in Jerusalem's like, oh great. We better figure out what's happening down there. But going to Antioch would be a, a, a demotion. You're going downhill. So no one wants to go except for one guy. His name, Barnabas. We've met him before. Barnabas, we met in chapter four, had a nickname. His nickname, the son of encouragement. Isn't that a great nickname? They hung around him for a while. They started watching him and they're like, we give you a nickname, son of encouragement. If your friends or your family or your workplace or your neighbors, if they gave you a nickname, would it be son of encouragement or son of a gun? 
What would it be? Hopefully our nickname is Son of Encouragements, that people say, oh, I love being around him. So he volunteers, I'll go down there. Yeah, okay. So here's what I want us to do. This church, I call it the first Christian church. It's the first church that is made up of Jews and all the other people together, the first Christian church. And what you see in it, I think, is the ingredient for real Christian community. And so I want us to look at what Barnabas sees as he comes down to this church for the first time, because I think it's really important, okay? And I think that's what church is supposed to be, just like this one. So number one, notice, he comes down, verse 23. When he came, he saw the grace of God. How cool is that? How do you see God's grace? If you showed up at a church for the first time, how would you know, oh, I see God's grace here? Like tangibly, like that, to me, it's a strange phrase, isn't it? I saw God's grace. Here's how I think you see it. If you would, turn with me to Titus chapter two, verse 11. This is one of my go-to texts in the whole Bible. I quote it all the time to people. How do you see God's grace? Notice what it says, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. All right, so we get the same kind of phrasing. He saw God's grace. The grace of God has appeared. And Paul's gonna give us, here's how you can see when God's grace is evident. So number one, he says this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The first way you see God's grace is all kinds of different people are getting saved. Not just Jews, all kinds of people. And if you were with us last week, I said, this was news to the church. The church was sure you first had to become a Jew and be circumcised and go through all these rituals. And then like graduation, you could become a Christian. But then Peter in chapter 10 is like, nope, that's not how it works. God shows no partiality. He'll save whoever he wants. It was news. I don't think it should have been. Because if you read the Bible, God is always saying, my goal is for all people. Genesis 12, three. This covenant I'm making with you, Abraham, I'm gonna bless all families of earth through it. Right, you keep going. Jonah was a prophet sent to who? Jews? Mm-mm. Ninevites. Go preach repentance to them. Isaiah, so many times in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, six just says this. The Messiah will be the light to the Gentiles. And he will bring many people, many nations, many different groups, many goyim, many people to salvation, right? Or Isaiah 56, right? The temple will be called a place for prayer for all nations. So I, I can give you tons of them. So it should have been a surprise. It was a surprise to them. But part of what you'll see when the, when the grace of Jesus is upon a church is you'll see all kinds of people getting saved, rich, poor, Good people and really, really bad people. Rich, no doubt. Poor, no doubt. Jew, no doubt. Ethiopian, no doubt. Uh, Cornelius, Nazi, no doubt. All kinds of different, you'll just be blown away. The church inside should look exactly like the community that it's in. 
So this diverse community that was in Antioch with all these different kinds of people, when Bartimaeus goes there, he sees all kinds of people being saved. And I said, last week, you have people from each of these different areas with walls dividing them, climbing over their walls Sunday morning to get together, to be in community, to learn from one another, from their experiences, from their worldview, learning, praising their king together. And the city watches this happening. They built these walls to protect people. They're like, what in the world is this group? Like, what do we call them? We can't call them Jews or Greeks or Ethiopians or Africans or Romans, we can't call them that because they're from everywhere. What do we call them? And of course, verse 26, we'll call them Christians. When you think about that, that's the origins of our name. I love it. Man, I love that name because that's the way the church is supposed to be. All kinds of people coming together, learning, worshiping the king together. And I think Paul, who spends a lot of time in Antioch, I think when he writes Ephesians 2, which is all about the joining of all people together, I think he's remembering Antioch because he says this in verse 14 of chapter two. He says that Jesus, the blood of Jesus, has broken down the wall between us, between the Jew and the Gentile. He's broken down. And as a church, we should always be breaking down walls that separate out people. That's one of the jobs of pastoring is just, no, that wall can't be there. No, no. So number one, all people being saved. Number two, and this is my money verse. Verse 12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What trains us? You can say it, yeah. Do, do accountability groups train us? Is that what it says? Accounting, waiting for the accountability groups to appear and they'll train us. No, they might be a good asset, but uh-uh. Morning devotions, waiting for morning devotions to appear to train us. No, that can be a great byproduct, no doubt about it. What trains us? Verse 12 the grace of God has appeared. Train us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. To say no to that garbage and yes to the good stuff. It's God's grace that trains us. That's what trains us. And so often I will listen to messages or well-meaning people. And this is what I say they do. They go back to Moses, the law, to try to accomplish what only grace can. And they start giving these things. I'm like, oh, you just, oh, no. It's grace that trains us. Well, how does it train us to do that? I'll give you an example. Okay, so let's say tomorrow morning, you're late and you need to get the kids off and all that kind of stuff. So you're a little bit late. You go up to wake up the kids. They're super hard to wake up. They stayed up too late playing Fortnite. You're like, get out of bed. I told you not to play those games. So you finally get them out of bed, get it under breakfast, you set the table, and then there's no milk. You're like, oh, so you gotta make a different breakfast now. Quickly scramble some eggs, you get the eggs on. Then you go to get dressed, you have no clean clothes. 
So you do the spot wash. You know how you do that? You're like, ah, oh, this will be fine. So you throw it in the dryer to kind of dry them off to make them just damp. So you're like, I'll just wear damp clothes. I don't care. So you put the damp clothes on. You finally get all the kids in the car. You drive them to school. You're yelling and screaming at them the whole time. You get up earlier. Don't play Fortnite. You get them out of the car and you're like, I am so late. So you speed and you're speeding down the road and all of a sudden sirens and lights. Oh no. And you're like, forget it. I'm out running the cop. So you just punch it. Right? So now other cops are joining. It's like a river and there's got like eight policemen behind you. And you're like, even faster. Ah! And then you hear this, whoa, 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 whoa. there's a helicopter now and a booming voice, pull the car over. You're like, no, even faster. And you're coming down the parkway. You're doing 150 miles per hour and you come right to the parkway bridge and they've got a barricade of cop cars across it. And you're like, oh no. So you slam on the brakes, Rah! almost hit a policeman. You pull to a stop, right? And you forget that your son's play pistol is on the front seat. So man, they've got guns drawn on you. They pull you out. They put you on the ground. They handcuff you. They stand you up and they're like, what in the world are you doing? So you retell the policeman the whole story. You're like, ah, and he's like, yeah, I've got kids too. Man, tell me about it. Tell you what I'm going to do today. Just going to give you a warning. (laughs) Don't do it again. (laughs) All right. So you get back in your car. How do you drive now? Do you peel out and like 170 again? No, you are blinker, check the mirror, check the mirror, merge, 35 miles per hour, perfect. All right, there we go. What trained you to drive differently? Someone's showing you grace, All right? That's scriptural. The heart does not change by law. Just go to any prison. They got great laws. No one loves their prisoner, the prison guards. What changes the human heart is God's grace. So I think here's what happens. Barnabas is all set up to come into this church and just see it immoral and Daphne-like. And he shows up and he's like, wow. These guys are saying no to the garbage and yes to the good stuff. That's unbelievable. Like I expect you to find Ashland and I found Grant's pass. This is so good. (laughs) Oh God, man, praise God. They didn't have synagogue training and they didn't have Torah reading and they didn't have scriptural memorization as kids. And yet something's trained them. Wow. And what he saw was the grace of God. It's working here. It's one of the reasons we take communion. It's a means of grace. It's we take the cup and the broken body. And what it reminds us is every single Sunday, this is how much Jesus loves you. This is how much he's willing to give for you. This is it. And it reminds you of that. And I'll tell you, I can't, there's, I can't express how much I love to hear this from people. Man, I know so-and-so. I knew them before they started going to Edgewater. Oh, you would not believe what a change has happened in their life. I say, praise God. They see, they see how grace trains us. So I think, number one, that's what Barnabas saw. Man, all kinds of people getting saved and those all kinds of people being changed. That's what he saw, okay? So what else did he see? Back to chapter 11 of Acts. Number two, he saw this, but then he said something. Verse 23, he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them, all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. 
Number two, he spoke grace. In the Greek, it literally says this, stay put in the Lord. He told them, just stay put in the Lord. There's something that happens to the Christian as we mature, where we start to believe, hey, that grace was great, Jesus was great to begin with, but now I need Hebrew roots, or now I need this kind of group, I, I, I need something else. And Barnabas is like, no, 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 time out, man. We tried all that for 1500 years. Stay put in the Lord, keep your eyes on him. See, here's what the Bible says, 2 Corinthians 3.18, that if we, with unveiled face, behold the Lord, we are metamorphosized like a tadpole into a frog, like a butterfly into a caterpillar into a butterfly. We are metamorphosized into the same image by the power of God's spirit. Or Hebrews 12, two. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That's what happens. When you and I keep our eyes on Jesus, something happens inside of us that changes us. Well, Matt, how does that work? Let me try to explain with an illustration. And the illustrated person will remain unnamed and you'll see why. So one of my daughters, when she was young, she just became a parent of me. Like for a, a, a period of time, it was just, she did what I did. If I tickled her, she'd tickle me. If I pointed at the dog and said, no, she'd take a little finger, no, right? So the thing reached uh, either a high point or a low point, depending on your perspective of this story. When one day I'm outside and I'm playing with our dog, Chloe, and I'm throwing this golf ball down into the field and it's bouncing and the dog's running down and getting the ball and, and she's just cracking up about it. Like just crack every time, just thinking it's the funniest thing in the world. So I keep doing it, keep doing it. Well, the last time, my dog, Chloe, didn't bring the ball to me, brought the ball over and set it right at her feet. And I tried to grab it first because it was covered in dog slobber and just gross. I didn't want her to touch it. So I tried it, but she was really fast. And so she grabbed it first. And then I thought, well, she's already touched it. I might as well see how good she is at throwing it. See if she can throw like her dad does, 200 yards or so. We'll see. <laughs> so she picks it up and I'm waiting to see her throw it. And she picks it up and instead of throwing it, she popped it right in her mouth. Yeah, totally. So is it a good story or a bad story? You decide. And the first thing I did, you know what I did? The first thing I did was mom watching. Of course, charity. Okay, good. All right, let's get that out of your mouth, right? It's already too late. That's just how bad is the damage. <laughs> now, why did she do that? She wasn't watching me. She was watching the dog. Because who you idolize and who you're watching, you're going to become like. If you're watching and idolizing and worshiping the dogs, guess what you're gonna be like? A dog. That's why the Bible over and over says, worship Jesus, keep your eyes on Jesus. Because what will happen is you'll start to become like him. It's natural. He has that kind of infectious personality. No matter how in the world do I watch Jesus? Do I get one of those cool blonde hippie pictures of Jesus and just like look at him for a while? Hmm. No, here's a practical way. I think there's all kinds of ways, but here's what I've been doing for about the last month or so. Now, as a family, I, at breakfast, we get breakfast ready and I try to write at seven o'clock because it's rushed. I just sit down and I don't eat. I just read the gospel of Matthew to my kids. And we're reading right now in the message Bible. 
which if you've read the message, it just always is like, huh. So sometimes I'll read the message, I'll be like, I gotta go check that out in a real Bible. <laughs> so I'll, I'll read it and that's it. I don't do a three-point message on it. I'm not trying to explain text or answer questions. All I'm trying to do is say, before you leave today, look at Jesus. Look how cool he is. Look how amazing he is. And here's what's happened to me. I just taught the book of Matthew a year and a half ago. There has not been a single time I've read the gospel of Matthew in the past month where I've not gone into my study after and been like, I gotta, like, that was really cool. Man, I didn't notice that. Jesus is becoming more and more beautiful to me. And I keep thinking, ah, I wanna be like him. Graceful, kind, strong, confident, on mission. I wanna be like him. That's what happens. You worship Jesus. You keep your eyes on him and you are being changed into that same image. It's what? It's what he says. Keep put. Don't move away from this. And then thirdly, notice what he does. So a great many people were added into verse 24. The thing is blowing up, right? So if you're Barnabas, you've been sent down here. You're the man in charge. You got this massive church now. What, what are you thinking? Woo, I'm the man. I'm gonna keep pulpit power. This is my place. Not him, what does he do? Verse 25, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch and he taught the Bible for a year. You know what Barnabas does? He says, I gotta get help. Like this thing's too big for me. They need a real Bible teacher. I'm not a real Bible teacher. I'm gonna go find me a real Bible teacher. And I'm gonna get down here and I'll bring him here. Barnabas did not do the normal thing that people do. Be ego driven. My ego, my thing. Ego always destroys. In fact, this church is so unnamed, they will send away their two top stars, Barnabas and Saul in chapter 13. Hey, you guys are out of here. And they go back just to an unnamed thriving church. In fact, the, the trajectory Barnabas sets Antioch on, the city is called to this day, the cradle of Christianity. That is the place where theologians came and started hanging out. You see that in verse 27, prophets began to come down there. They used to be in Jerusalem, like this is the place to be. Then all of a sudden I was like, wow, that's the place to be. It becomes the cradle that really puts into motion much of the theology that we enjoy today. Put it in motion, why? Because Barnabas said, I gotta get help. This thing's too big. It's been rightly said, it's amazing how much a man or woman can accomplish if they don't care who gets the credit. That's Barnabas. And I think we always have to be kingdom-minded and never my ministry-minded or church-minded. It should always be in Grants Pass, in Josephine County, what is the best thing I could possibly do for your kingdom, Jesus? When you do that, you change a city. And that's what Barnabas does. One final thing, because you can have all this great stuff, all this horsepower, but all that horsepower should be doing something. Because a lot of times I think church is like a rocking chair. Lots of motion, but no movement, not this church. So these prophets start coming down. And one of them says, there's gonna be a famine down there in Judea. In verse 29, here's what it says. So that it's a brilliant verse. If I had time, I'd take it apart. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers 
living in Judea, the Jews for centuries had shown their dislike for Gentiles. They had a prayer, God, thank you that you have not made me a dog or a Gentile, right? They wouldn't go in, we'll see on Wednesday in Acts chapter 10, they would not go into another, a Gentile's home and eat with him. They completely cut him. No, you guys are untouchable, you're gross, right? So that had been there for a long time. You have a group of people that had been on the receiving end of that who say, oh, they're struggling. I'm getting out my checkbook. How awesome is that? What is it that actually motivates people to brilliant ministry like this? Sadly, the church so often uses guilt. Like, come on, don't you care? What's wrong with you? Ever been guilted into a ministry? I have. So I did middle school ministry for one year. And I was guilted into it. I'm like, okay, fine, I'll do it. All right, whatever. And I get in there and I did it for one year. And after one year, you know what I found? I don't like middle schoolers. <laughs> I'm kind of kidding. I kind of like them. I didn't like this middle school, I could say that. Like it was going and it was just, it was the rough house wrestling middle school group, right? So it's just like sweaty boys and like bloody nose and banged up. I'd be like, ow, man, I'm just not sure if I'm cut out for this. And what really saddened me was like, there was other people there who loved it. They're like, man, this is the highlight of my week. I'm like, this is the day I dread. It's guilted in, it never lasts. The Bible never guilts. What motivated these people to get into ministry? God's grace. God's grace, that's what did it. And it says that like they determined what they wanted to give. No one's telling them to. It's just their hearts have been so moved by Jesus that they say, I want to give to this church. I love that. God's grace, the good news, that's what motivates. That's why I think every message should be an Easter message. It should be Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I live, Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the power of the Son of God who loved me and died for me. I think every message should be a Christmas message. Good tidings of great joy, a savior has been born. I think as believers every morning, we should preach the good news to ourselves. That's what Martin Luther did every morning. We should preach Romans 5 or 8, that God demonstrated his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you were your absolute worst, that's when he died for you. And if he loved you when you were worst, man, don't you know that love's not gonna change? We need to preach that to ourselves because it's what motivates ministry. You look in the Bible, it doesn't use guilt. If you look at the Bible and say, why should we be generous? New Testament. So many messages are, you should be generous in America because you have more, right? Isn't that the message? Look how much you have. Your garbage disposal eats better than 35% of the world. So come on, what's wrong with you? When that happens to me, I revert into my childhood and I think, no, mine. That's not what the Bible does though. The Bible says, be generous. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. 
because he who was rich became poor for your sake. Look at Jesus, look at the good news, look at what he did. That's the motivation for giving. That entire section is all about grace giving. These guys determined in themselves what they wanted to give, right? Forgiving, right? We're supposed to forgive. Why should we forgive? Some people say, well, it's because of health benefits. Like if you hold bitterness inside of yourself, it can ruin you physically, emotionally, spiritually, which those are all true, but that's not what the Bible says. What's our motivation for forgiving? Ephesians 4.32. Forgive one another because God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. That's how. How about husbands love your wives? Right? A lot of marriage books are, if you love your wife, then there'll be a paycheck, man. Just do what you gotta do. Trust me, it'll work out well. That's not what the Bible says. It's Ephesians 5.25, right? Like Christ has loved the church. Like Christ has loved you. That's your example. That's what you look to. Pick up your cross, why? Because Jesus took up his cross for you. I can go on and on and on. The motivation in the New Testament is always the gospel, It is the power of God and of salvation. It saved us, it is saving us, and it will save us. And those are all three in the Bible, all with the gospel. It saved us in the beginning, it's saving me right now, and future tense, it will save me. The power of the gospel. It's the gasoline for the Christian walk, right? Who here would say, you know what? For the past couple months, I've been putting gasoline in my car every single week. I'm not not gonna do that anymore. I'm gonna try something else. I'm gonna put water in my gas tank. And I know somebody in Iowa has an uncle who runs all their tractors on water. Okay, great. Believe it if you want, but it doesn't work. Okay? Why do we keep putting gasoline every single week in our cars? Because it works. Why do we keep coming back to the gospel? Because it works. It's what motivates us to ministry. So you read about this first Christian church and I just look at it and go, it's so brilliant. And a lot of what we do here, I wanna be like this church, right? We really teach grace, huge important. We teach theology, we want theology, we want you to know God, right? We um, want community, we want people going over walls to get into groups that are very different than themselves. So we don't have homogenous groups, we actually try to make them different different age groups, different socioeconomic, different races. We want all that. We want this thing to look just like the city of Grants Pass. Good, bad, ugly, doesn't matter. Exactly like the city of Grants Pass because it's God's grace. And community groups blew up. Like we have 50 or so. Every single Sunday, people are signing up to get into a community group. We're actually out of leaders. So now people are like, hey, Matt, I wanna get into a community group. I'm like, do you wanna lead one? By the way, what's your name again? Not a good way to get leaders. (laughs) Who are you? Do you believe in Jesus? Okay, you're a leader. So we're a little bit at that, but man, I love that. I love that people are saying, we we know how important it is to be known and to know each other in the body of Christ. Love that. And then we want mission. So I don't know if you know what we're doing on mission at Edgewater. So I'm gonna try to take three minutes and tell you. There are four ways that we feel like, hey, we don't wanna be the rocking chair Lots of motion, but no movement. We wanna try to transform places. So there's four places we're doing it right now. Number one, safe families in Grants Pass. So if you don't know what safe families are, next Sunday, there's a video. I'll give you 30 seconds. A DHS in Grants Pass can handle about 350 foster care kids. 
They get phone calls every year for about 10 times that amount. So what they have to do is decide what's the forest fire and what's just smoldering. And the smoldering ones may erupt and become worse, but we gotta take care of the forest fires. What Safe Family says is, we'll try to jump in on the smoldering ones and see if we can help by surrounding that family with five families, maybe even bringing the kids out into a different um, area for a little while and then reuniting them. So in foster care, kids spend an average of 400 days away from their family. In safe families, it's about 40. Now that could be, you know, foster care is taking care of the forest fires, so they're a little bit harder situations. But it's also the main like emphasis of safe families is let's get that Genesis 2 unit back together. And there's all kinds of ways to be involved. You can host kids or you can just cook a meal. And there's tons of ways to be involved in it. And I think we've made mistakes, no doubt. And we're learning. But when it comes to transforming Grant's Pass, Josephine County, to me, this is one of the keys. So that's safe families. Um, we f- support the folks to add family. They're moving back here in June. Um, that's the plan. So that will be ending. Uh, we support a mission in Carmen Cerdan, Mexico. This mission down there is for severely handicapped people. The majority without 24 seven care would die. So it's a nonstop, hands-on ministry. That place is special in my heart. And it was used 1998 in a very like massive growth time in my life. It was huge for that. Just set apart, ministering, taking care of the, the lowest of the lowest of people, learning about Jesus in community, brilliant. So we support that. Uh, we're sending a group of men down there they're gonna re-roof some roofs down there. There's opportunity. Maybe this summer we'll take a couple of trips. Let us know if that sounds good. It's only 30 miles south of the border. So it's really accessible, really awesome. If you're single, I think, in fact, if you're a family even, they're looking for single people and a family right now to come down full time. So that's an option. We support them. And then the last one, New Song Church in Nairobi, Kenya. So we met Pastor Douglas 10 plus years ago, brilliant guy, helped kind of launch the church. Um, We uh, weren't quite involved for a while and now we're 100% back in with him. And this is an amazing church. It is on the edge of one of the slums, one of the worst slums I think in the world. It's brutal. All slums are bad, this one's worse. So it's just a brutal place. So they're right there and their whole goal is we want the slum, Jesus, we want the slum. So they're doing some really cool things right now. Uh, They're taking young men that when you're in the slum as a young man, you have two options, get out or you're in a gang. And if you go into a gang, that is a really, really bad life. So what Pastor Douglas has done is he has a home that he brings these young men into, helps them get their high school diploma and then gives them a job. The job that they're being given right now is installing these water filters. So you know Kohler, K-O-H, L-E-R, like big major manufacturer faucets and stuff. They, working with a number of people like a guy in Chicago and Pastor Douglas, designed this really, really good water filter. It's like 25 bucks. And what they do is we subsidize that as a church, then they get it. And then the, they sell it for $8, which, which people can make installment plans. It's very affordable, but they want them to have ownership in it. Because when you own it, When you pay a little bit for it, you're like, okay, I'm gonna take care of this thing. So they've installed 2,500 of these filters in the slums. 
which means about 10,000 plus people are now drinking water without parasites and cholera and junk in it every single day. Some of them dying from those things. So it's awesome. So that's nonstop. These guys, these young men are actually doing the installation work and they get paid like a buck for doing it or something, but it works out really good. They're involved in the church. It's awesome. They have like, they did microfinancing before there was microfinancing at this church. Helping a woman buy a uh, sewing machine or some pots and pans to cook on the side of the road. And they, she would pay that money back and they would go to the next person. Like really, really cool things. We're sending a group of high schoolers over there in June. Be praying for that group, that it's transformational to those that are going on it. So those are the way we're doing mission, missions right now. So here's my one thing that I'll leave you with. And I realize that when you come to a church, there's a waiting period where you're kind of evaluating like, is this church a place that I can plug into, I can belong to? And that's really healthy. I tell people that are new here, you know what, hang out for at least six months. At least a, maybe a year and just get to know us. Or else what can happen is you can jump into things and not be in the right place and then feel misunderstood and all this kind of stuff. Get to know us first. And then, man, jump in, jump in strong. So if you've been here six months, a year, whatever it is, and you're still waiting, I would say, get out of the doorway, come in, jump into a community group. When we find leaders, and we will, we'll raise them up. Jump into mission, save families. Jump into community, get involved here, right? It's okay to talk to a buddy in the doorway for a little while when you go over to his house, but eventually you come in and have a meal and you get involved and you help and you participate. This church at Antioch, I love it so much because there's unnamed people, right? It's unnamed. It was founded by unnamed people. They take their two big name guys, Barnabas and Paul. And in chapter 13, they say, get out of here. Go do mission work. And it still grows and expands and becomes the cradle of Christianity because it was strong people like us, unnamed, just doing what God had told us to do because grace has moved us. Jump in with us. And we come to the table, lastly. And here's what I'd ask you to do today. Think about Jesus in paradise, really good company. You know, angels are a great company. They don't complain and murmur and lie and gossip. You don't worry about their motives. Like they're a great company. He leaves all that and comes down here where he's homeless, hungry at times, hanging out with all the wrong people. And why do you do that? Because he loves you. If that doesn't begin to change your heart, pray that it does. Jesus, you love me that much to leave comfort and leave safety and leave all the right kind of people to come and hang out with people like me. Oh, I love you. I love you. And let that be the gasoline that motivates you to minister, to say, I wanna do the same thing. I wanna leave my place of comfort. Maybe it's a doorway. I wanna jump into places that maybe are uncomfortable because you did it for me, Jesus. So Father, Thanks for your goodness and your grace to us. Thanks that you use unnamed people to start one of the most important churches in the entire book of Acts. It's a group of people that love you and are sharing you with friends and neighbors across walls 
and you moved and revival happened. We pray in Grant's Pass that we would be that same unnamed group of people that love you and share you across walls and great revival happens in our city and it becomes a cradle of Christianity for Southern Oregon. That's our hope. So fill us with the gasoline of grace and may it power us through this week. We pray this in your name, amen.